Okay, Titus chapter 2. If you've got your scriptures, turn them there. We are wrapping up uh, the main portion. Interestingly enough, in Titus chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, verse 15 probably fits better with chapter 3. Um, chapter breaks are not inspired. Uh, these are the best guesses of those who um, study the Greek language and the way the chapters were laid out. In fact, if we wanted to be really true to the copies of the New Testament that we have, we wouldn't even have breaks between the words because the way that this was written was in capital letters all strung together. There was no breaks anywhere, and uh, you had to know the language pretty well to be able to read through something that was just connected without any breaks. Um, the letter would have been one document that just had a string, started with one capital and just strung them all together. And uh, I've seen that. I've seen the, the copies, the manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts, and it's just um, very discouraging to see them. <laughs> And so we're very grateful for chapter breaks and word breaks and sentence breaks and commas and all of the things that help us in English language to read our scriptures. But probably verse 15 would be better suited with chapter 3. So we're going to study tonight chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. And then we're going to connect chapter 3 verse 1. We'll start it with verse 15 of chapter 2 next Sunday evening as we study the next paragraph. Let me go ahead and read chapter 2. Uh, I'll read down through verse 14, and uh, we'll set the context again if you haven't been with us, or if you have, just as a reminder, and then we'll jump into our time of study in these verses for this evening. Paul here in chapter 2 is contrasting Titus with the false teachers, and he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, a life that is matched up with doctrine, and then he articulates that for very specific groups of people within the local church. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, Paul now focuses on Titus himself, show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now that is a tall order for every single grouping. That is an unbelievable uh, amount of teaching that Titus is to transfer to the people of God on Crete, and that he is to model as their shepherd. Verse 11, how could this possibly come to pass? Well, because of the truths that we find at the end of this chapter. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, 
who are zealous for good works. Okay? That's the context for our study this evening, and we'll give our attention tonight to verses 11 through 14. Now, last week we spent time with David sharing with us and teaching us and helping us study verses 6 down through verse 6 down through verse 10. And he did a phenomenal job of reminding us that the the central point of this was a lifestyle that has been affected by doctrine for the sake of the credibility of that same doctrine. And so the end is a life that is in accord verse 1 with sound doctrine and the means to that end is the doctrine itself. So We saw last week for those young men who have only one need in their life. We young men only have one grand need, and that is to have self-control. Lives that are prioritized and are disciplined. And even as Titus represents most likely the young men crowd as the model young man in verse 7. And as a shepherd, he is to give himself to modeling these these things. Notice the end of verse 8, which is repeated in the previous verses. That those who are opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then in verse 10, speaking to the slaves, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the point is that we as believers and the church, the local assembly, and there on the island of Crete where Titus was ministering, those believers needed to know that truth went hand in hand with their lifestyle. Just as it uh, is revealed in the end of chapter 1, that error goes hand in hand with the lifestyle of those who teach it and follow it, right? In other words, your doctrine is directly connected to your practice, whether it is false doctrine, which leads to errant practice, or whether it is truth, that is the doctrine of Scripture, which leads and is connected to a lifestyle of obedience that is above reproach and above accusation. I don't know about you, but in rereading that section, I was reminded throughout this week of the daunting pressure Um, The heavy weight of awareness that my life is necessary in backing up the doctrine of Scripture. And, And your lives are the necessary, credible connection to doctrine. Not only are we required to walk in a manner that is worthy of the doctrine that we so dearly believe, but it is the natural result of the doctrine we believe. And what is so daunting about this is relieved with verses 11 through 14. Because if we were left at the end of verse 10 to ask ourselves, how am I going to grit it out and be what I should be? How am I going to buckle down and be self-controlled as I should be? How am I going to live older ladies, younger ladies, older men, younger men in a way that is in accord with doctrine? This is a fearful command for us. This is a fearful instruction that Titus is giving to the believers on Crete. And yet we find in verse 11 the comforting explanation of how that is to take place. What is the source of this lifestyle? What provides the energy, the power, the ability to live out a life that is in accord with sound doctrine? Well, 
it is nothing short of the grace of God. It is the grace of God that we find in verse 11 that has appeared, that is the central theme of verses 11 through 14, and it is to be the driving motivation of our lives. It is to be the driving, controlling power of our godliness, and we're going to see that throughout this text. Now, I've broken this up for us tonight, and hopefully this will help us, not confuse us, but I've broken this into three descriptions of grace. Um, This is an interesting section because like good old Apostle Paul so often does, verses 11 through 14, that's one sentence. I mean, I don't know about you, but when we took English in school, we got docked for sentences like this, right? This was a run-on of all run-ons. He just keeps adding to this sentence. This is one sentence, which makes it a little bit of a challenge for us this evening, but I hope to show you and help you study this in a way that makes this very clear and meaningful for our interaction with God's word and the demand for us to live lives in accord with sound doctrine. So number one, saving grace, which is what is put on display, the grace of God, saving grace is present grace. Saving grace is present grace. Notice in verse 11, right off the bat, as the heading of this sentence, for the grace of God has appeared. It is here. The grace of God is active. That little word for connects us back to verse 10. That was... I hope understood in the introduction, it connects us and it explains now the reality behind the command. The grace of God is present. Saving grace is present grace for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is the central theme of this text. Grace has come and it accomplishes the high calling that God has for his people. And we're going to come full circle by the end and see the means of that grace being applied to sinful people like you and I. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We read Ephesians 1 that spoke much of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about this saving grace. And this is a familiar passage to us. But the, the point of this saving grace is to remove from us any boasting in our own salvation. And I would propose for you this evening that not only does it remove boasting for our salvation, but it removes boasting from our sanctification as well, as we're going to see throughout this text. Saving grace is present grace. At the end of verse 11, we find an interesting little, um, interesting little phrase, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God is the means of salvation. It is his gracious merit, his, his gracious affection for those who are undeserving. And it brings salvation for all people. Now that leaves us with just a very, just a very few choices as to what we understand that to mean. Some have mistakenly understood that to mean that all individuals will be saved. That clearly contradicts the instruction of our New Testaments elsewhere. The scriptures do not contradict themselves. And so one thing for sure that God's grace appearing and bringing salvation for all people does not mean is that all individuals universally will be saved or are being saved. It's quite clear throughout our New Testaments and throughout the whole of scripture that the wicked will be judged. And there are those who are being saved. and There are those who are not being saved. There is indeed a heaven for those who are in Christ. 
And there is indeed a hell for those who are not in Christ. So that eliminates one alternative for our understanding of this passage. Another alternative would be that this brings the potential for salvation to all people. This means that in a very general sense, God's grace is appearing. It is here. It is present. And it makes available salvation for all people. And I think that that's at least we're on the right road. We're getting there. I think the better understanding or the fullest understanding and the third option would be to see this, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and offering it to both Jews and Gentiles. And this is something that we need to understand from a biblical study standpoint. Often, often our scriptures in our New Testament speak of all people and occasionally the all people is the most broad sense of humanity. More often, there is a a select understanding of the all people that would help us grasp not a universal salvation of humanity, but rather the clear intention of God in the church to move the gospel beyond the chosen nation of Israel to all people, that is, Jews and Gentiles alike. And we are eternally grateful for the salvation that has gone to all peoples because we are mostly all the peoples This is the mystery of the gospel that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile would be brought together. We studied this in our adult Sunday school class in the book of Galatians, a letter to the Galatian churches. Salvation has come now to all because God's grace has appeared. Grace, saving grace, is present grace. It is on the scene. Now notice that This grace brings salvation. It is bringing salvation for all people. That is an ongoing activity of the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God. But there is a second activity that is an ongoing reality for this grace of God, which is present. And that leads us to our second major heading for our study tonight. And that is that saving grace is not only present grace that is working salvation, but saving grace is training grace. It is present and it is active in saving grace. Sinners from all nations, and it is also active in training all who are saved to be a certain way. We find this in verse number 12. You see, we have two participles, and this is grammar lesson for you. Just a little pause for grammar. When we read this, you notice if you're walking along in the in the sentence for the grace of God has appeared comma in our ESV bringing salvation for all people. Comma, training us to renounce ungodliness, and it goes on from there. These two participles, those are the ing words, bringing and training, are are equal or parallel activities of the grace of God that has appeared, that is present, that is here now. There is salvation being brought, and there is training being accomplished. Verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Saving grace is present grace. It has appeared and it is saving and it is also a training grace. Now, notice how Paul explains to Titus with the backdrop of a lifestyle that matches doctrine, 
He now encourages him with an explanation of the grace of God being on the scene for the sake of this work being accomplished through the believers. And he focuses our attention on the training work of the grace of God with both a negative and a positive. There is the negative that is trained in us by God's grace and there is a positive training that goes on because of God's grace. Let's look at those Two categories, both the negative and the positive, will begin with the negative in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Here's what is true about the grace of God. If you have been brought to salvation, you are a part of the all peoples being brought to salvation. If that is your testimony, <clears throat> the grace of God is also presently training you to renounce certain activities, certain lifestyles, certain perspectives. The grace of God is ongoing in its training us to renounce, to set aside, to reject ungodliness, which is such a familiar word in our Christian lingo, the opposite of God's character in lifestyle. Ungodliness and, number two, worldly passions. Those base earthly drives that drive us in our flesh, apart from the grace of God, we live solely to accomplish our worldly passions. Right? Apart from the grace of God, which has appeared and has brought us to salvation, we live entirely to fulfill our worldly passions. And in every expression of our lives, we are ungodly. So the ongoing process for the one who has experienced the saving grace of God is this training process. It is this ongoing process of renouncing ungodliness as a way of life and renouncing worldly passions as my highest end. These are the negative connotations that must be set aside and are set aside by those who are being trained by the grace of God. Now, it's interesting. We could pause here and before we look at the positive training that goes on, let's pause for a moment and understand that in the parallel concepts of bringing salvation to all people and training us to renounce and to live, which is the positive, we have this truth that kind of jumps off the page at us. If these are two parallel activities of the grace of God, then for us to claim that we are experiencing one without the other actually goes in the face of this text. So saving grace is training grace. There is no saving grace that does not result in the ongoing training of the life. Does that make sense? There, there are many today who would claim to have experienced the saving grace of God. Who show no fruits of the training process that accompanies that saving grace. These are parallel ideas. And they are equally valid as the activities of God's grace. So the negative then is to renounce ungodliness and to renounce our worldly passions, the base drives that carry us forward in our flesh. And now on the positive end, we find in the second half of verse 12 and to live now looking at the positive to live. And we're back to our our most familiar word in our list, self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The grace of God that has appeared, and I'll let the cat out of the bag, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
the grace that has rescued us from the just penalty of our sin and saved us is also our personal trainer. It's with us daily. And there is an ongoing process because of this grace's presence. There's an ongoing process of renouncing and positively living. Here's the life that is being trained by the grace of God. Self-controlled, upright, and godly. Really in contrast to ungodly and life lived according to our worldly passions. Self-controlled, again, deals with the discipline, the prioritizing, the careful lifestyle of one who is set on a very specific path with very specific goals. This has been used to speak about younger men, which we saw in verse 6. This has been used to speak about younger women that we saw in verse 5. This is also used to describe older men in verse 2. Self-control becomes the, the theme of the Christian life. It goes all the way back in the qualifications for elders in verse 8 of chapter 1. We see that they are to be hospitable, lovers of good, and self-controlled, upright, and holy. Very similar wording. Paul does not vary in his descriptions of the Christian life. The training that is ongoing with saving grace is one that produces self-control, a lifestyle that is upright, that is holy, that is set apart, that is righteous in its ways, and thus mirrors God in His character, godly. This is the lifestyle that is trained by grace. This threefold description is a powerful picture for us of what it is to live life as a believer and living life in accord with sound doctrine. Now, I I don't know about you, but when I study this text, I am brought to just a very simple comparison of my life in the present to what is obviously the intended work of grace in my life. So we are... We are, I believe, it is appropriate for us to ask ourselves, how readily am I seeing the training work of grace in me? In what facets of my life am I seeing the ongoing effects of grace as I renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and as I live on the positive side, self-controlled, upright, and a godly life? These are the fruits of grace ongoing in its work of training us. God has saved us. God is also now training us to live lives which He demands and which He has rescued us for the purpose of living. Now notice the last phrase of verse 12. And it sets us up for what we find in verse 13. Having seen the negative and the positive of the training, we notice that this training is an ongoing process right here and right now in this or in the present age. Paul's concerned throughout his letters with the, um, the present life of the believer, but the eternal perspective of the believer. So we live with this tension as Christians. We are here, but we live for there. We are in the nasty now and now, and we look forward to the sweet by and by, okay? Uh, we live with that tension, and Paul cons- consistently brings back that tension. And this training ministry is ongoing in this present age, so that our life today, tomorrow, this week, is directly affected by the sovereign grace of God. 
that gracious work in this present age is marked by a very specific eternal perspective. And now Paul, in his run-on sentence, springs forward to yet another aspect of the training work of grace. If we are to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, it will be directly connected to what we find in verse 13, which will be our ongoing practice. If we are to live lives that are trained by grace, it will be because we are waiting, we are anticipating, we are looking forward to our blessed hope. In other words, we as believers, we have the activity of God's grace present in us. It has saved us, it is training us and sanctifying us. And with that activity of grace, we are anticipating a hope. There is a sure, certain reality that is the focus of our attention. Paul does not leave us to wonder what we're waiting for in this hope. What is the certainty of the believer? The certainty of the believer is the second half of verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. So here we find the dual perspective of the Christian who is living life in accord with sound doctrine. This is a grace-motivated, grace-initiated, grace-saturated life. This is a grace-trained life that is waiting for a very specific reality to come. And that reality is the appearing of the glory of Christ. We live in this present age lifestyles that are marked by the coming age. We live in this present age with anticipation of the return of the one who will usher in the future age. Waiting is the definition of the godly life that is trained by grace. It is a waiting life, anticipating, looking for the glorious return of Christ. Flip over to a very, probably a very familiar section. First John. First John chapter three. Marveling at the love of the father which we've sung about tonight, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The, rants, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now notice verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you understand the connection there of verse 3? The anticipation of his return is a motivation. It is a part of the purification process, the ongoing sanctification and growth process for the believer. Everyone who thus hopes, the ones who anticipate the return of Christ, who look forward with joy, to the return of Christ. Those are the ones who are also marked by purifying themselves even as he is pure. We are setting ourselves in order for the grand hope of our existence that we will see him as he is and we will thus be like him. We are waiting for this hope and the hope that we await is nothing short of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a designation for Christ. 
terms piled up on top of each other. Some have wondered what is best in, maybe your translation has these a little different. I think the ESV does a good job of piling these terms in a way that leads us up to Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He is our great God and Savior. I believe both of those are descriptions of Jesus himself. Finally, he is recognized as the Christ. So saving grace is present grace. It is ongoing in its appearance. It is here. It is now. Saving grace is also training grace. It is ongoing in its effects. It is teaching us. It is disciplining us to renounce and to live even as we wait for the grand appearing of our Savior. Finally, saving grace is divine grace. Saving grace is divine grace. And we come full circle in verse 15. As Paul so often does, he comes back to the very truth that really he began with. The grace of God has appeared. And now in verse 14, which we would have anticipated coming in the middle of verse 11, he now comes back to that first thought. He has ended with the great God and Savior Jesus Christ in verse 13. And now he clearly defines for us the work of this Christ that has provided this grace that is appeared, that has appeared. Verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 14 clearly defines for us the divine origin of this grace. This grace that is defined very simply in verse 11 as the grace of God. The grace that flows directly from God is now articulated for us and explained for us in verse 14 as the very work of Jesus Christ himself. Here is the purpose of Christ. He gave himself For this purpose, to rescue, to redeem, to buy us from lawlessness and to purify us for his own possession. Twofold purpose. To buy a people and then to make a people a very specific category of people who are zealous for good works. Now, we began our evening tonight reading in Ephesians 1 about God's sovereign purposes in salvation. And clearly we find in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been saved for good works that he has prepared beforehand in Christ. If we are saved, we are saved for the very real end of living lives that mirror the character of our Savior and accord with sound doctrine. Thus we find it here in verse number 14. Saving grace is present, it has appeared, it is with us. It is active. Saving grace is training grace. It is an ongoing work that is being accomplished. And its origins are uniquely divine in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave himself for the purpose of the very lifestyle that Titus is commended to teach the people on Crete. Jesus Christ died for the very purpose of of what we find in verses 2 through 10 being true. 
Maybe we haven't thought about it this way, but grace is active in us because Jesus Christ came and gave himself for the purpose of you being the older man that you are called to be in verses 2 through 10. Being the older lady that you are called to be in verses 2 through 10. Being the younger man and the younger ladies that we are called to be. And, and even for Titus, grace is available because Christ came to provide it for him to be the model of this lifestyle that accords with sound doctrine. Verse 14 echoes Old Testament theology, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Clearly, God's people for a possession in the old covenant was Israel. And now in Christ, the mystery of Christ is that we, all people, all nations, the church, the bride of Christ, are that people that he possesses who have been purified for that very purpose. Look over at Ephesians chapter 5 and we'll look at this picture that often we get Ephesians 5 turned around. We view it as a passage about marriage. It's not. It's a passage about the gospel that then is seen in the illustration of marriage. Notice the description of Christ's affection for this people for his own possession. Husbands are commended to love their wives in verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And now. We are right on track with where we are in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. For this purpose, that so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then Paul comes back after that glorious description of Christ's work. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. Painting the picture of sacrifice for the sake of another, Paul points to the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of another. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her for the purpose of purifying her and then ultimately presenting her to himself as his bride. Saving grace is divine grace. It is Christ-centered grace. Because Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 reminds us that Christ gave himself for the very purpose of granting us grace. Setting us apart for himself as those people who are zealous, who are eager, who are pursuing good works. Now, we finish verse 14 and really we finish the theme of chapter 2 with a... um, A phrase that needs our caution and attention. For we are a people set apart as zealous for good works. And sometimes we think of good works in Reformation theology as a negative. Good works are are not ours to pursue, right? We, we We are not earning merit by our good works. Good works don't get us anywhere. So it's a negative idea of our effort in good works. But don't miss the context in which these people are defined as zealous for good works. They are zealous for good works because the grace of God has appeared, rescued them, and is training them to be zealous for good works. And so we're left with this description. We are to be a people who are pursuing with all of our might and energy and passion 
a lifestyle that fits the doctrine of grace. And we are to be pursuing this life that fits the doctrine of grace by grace. God has begun the work. He is ongoing in the work. And even as we strive for good works, we are doing so because he is active in training us by his grace to live in such a way. This is the truth of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 ought to be underlined and highlighted in our Bibles. Paul tells the believers at Philippi, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Unbelievable words. Be giving yourself to an effort. Pursue your own salvation. Live it out. Work it out with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. At the end of the day, if you are an older man who is living a life in accord with sound doctrine, if you are an older lady who is living life in accord with sound doctrine, younger man, younger woman, whatever the case, at the end of the day, if that is your testimony, it is because God is at work in you. Right? See, he receives the glory. It is grace that makes it possible for us to live life in accord with sound doctrine. It is grace that has opened our eyes to sound doctrine and then continues that process. So Paul is clearly called Titus to teach the believers on Crete that life and doctrine go hand in hand. And he has concluded that that calling on Titus to both teach it and to model it with this encouragement in verses 11 through 14. You're not left up to your own effort, your own wisdom, your own abilities, your own inherent strength to somehow figure out how to do this and then apply it. You are actually granted grace from God, present, saving you, sanctifying you, producing within you a life that is anticipating the return of Christ, And the life that is focused on the very redemption that is yours in Christ, setting you apart for this very lifestyle in accord with sound doctrine. Okay? At the end of the day, we don't get any of the glory. That's why when we are rewarded before the throne, we are rewarded for those activities that are done in dependence upon His grace. We are rewarded for those... uh, obedient steps that are taken in our lives, we will turn and throw that reward back at the throne of the Son. We will return praise and say, worthy is the Lamb. We will give it all back because it is all because of Him that any of this is true in us. Any fruit we bear is a direct result of the work of grace in us. Now, how does that affect This week. How does that affect. Whatever it is that's on your plate. Tomorrow. How does that affect. Your response to the trial that you are. Currently living in. How does that affect the blessings that you are currently enjoying. How does that affect your interaction with others. Who are in Christ who are dealing with trials and blessings. The grace of God must become a very real understanding of our Christian lives. We must pursue an awareness 
that God is graciously at work in and through me. That it is not left to me to sanctify myself. He has saved me and now left me for sanctification. We must renew our thinking, understanding that it is his power through Christ that is ongoing in training us. And then we must be zealous to see that work continue. Dependence upon grace for salvation must lead us to a dependence upon grace for our sanctification. Are you praying and asking God to provide grace so that you might walk in obedience, so that you might be trained to obey him? Are you praying for grace that you might respond properly to whatever life circumstance he brings? Echoing Paul, who could live whether in riches or in poverty, that in Christ you could do either. All things are possible for you in Christ. Saving grace is training grace. No exceptions. All those who would profess saving grace must necessarily see the ongoing work of training grace. And finally, grace is found most dramatically in the person and work of Christ. How central is the gospel, the very place of the appearing of the grace of God, the work of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation through him. How central is that to our ongoing daily lives. Do you wake up in the morning. Again preaching the gospel to yourself. It's not up to me. My righteousness is not good enough. There is a substitute who has stood in for me. He has made righteousness available. I am in him before the father. It is his work that has provided the grace needed for obedience today. I do not live without grace I do not live needing to earn grace today. How real and how central is the gospel to our existence? We must pattern our lives after the realities found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, if we are to see our lives mirror the calling to live in accord with sound doctrine. This is the exclamation point on a very challenging chapter in our letter to Titus as he ministers to those believers on Crete. Father, thank you for this too brief of a lesson on grace. We are so prone to wander from your grace, so prone to ignore the reality and the presence of ongoing grace we are so prone to discard the training work of your grace through christ and to replace it with our own effort with our own energy to strive in our own power to live lives that match the gospel that has redeemed us and yet we are reminded tonight that that saving grace that brought us to you the saving grace that opened our eyes and our ears to the truth is the same grace that is ongoing in its effect. It is training us. May we submit to it. May we revel in it this week. May we glory in the gospel this week as your people. May we be aware that we are no more able to earn merit in our growth as believers than we were able to earn merit in our conversion and our salvation. Grace began this work 
grace is continuing this work. And we wait with anticipation to grace completing this work in the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Train us by your grace this week, we pray. We desire for our lives to be lived in such a way that they match the grand doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot accomplish this. And so we ask for your work to be very evident in and through us. May we rest in the means of that grace. May we come quickly to your word to allow it to renew our thoughts. May we come quickly to depend upon your spirit to give us understanding. To comfort us, to guide us in the truth through our daily lives. May we quickly turn to the fellowship and encouragement of other believers as a means of your training grace. May we be as dependent upon the means as we are expectant of the end. We ask this not because we deserve it, but because in Christ it is your high calling for us as your people. And so we ask it with anticipation. Looking forward to what you have for us this week. May we be trophies of your grace. Never boasting except in the cross of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.